for those of you who may be wondering, I have a choice in moments like that. I can either sing or clap. I cannot do both. And it wouldn't be helpful to anyone if I tried. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 59 today, as in the <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> as in the Lord's good and wise and perfectly timed providence. We continue in our series through Isaiah. As you turn there, and I would encourage you to turn there um, in your Bible, hopefully it's your Bible, Um, if not, then the Pew Bible. I would discourage you from uh, the Bible on your device um, because there are benefits um, beyond the scope of this introduction to holding open God's Word physically in your hand. As you turn there, let me remind you of where we are in this thing. Throughout the record of his ministry in Israel, especially regarding his interactions with Ahaz at the beginning of his ministry and Hezekiah at the end of his ministry, separated, two interactions separated by almost 40 years, Isaiah has demonstrated the problem, our problem, of our stubborn and steadfast rebellion. It's a problem that we've had since the days of the garden. And it is worth noting that it is Isaiah's diagnosis itself that was so offensive and so violently opposed. In fact, tradition suggests that Isaiah was sawn in two by Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, for this diagnosis at the center of his message. His diagnosis, however, wasn't the substance or the heartbeat of his message. It rather presented the necessary backdrop for the real substance of his message, namely the double comfort that we encounter in the latter half of his book, chapter 40 through the end. The double comfort of the holy God's entirely unexpected and unimaginable plan to address our problem. My problem, your problem, Israel's problem. Our natural expectation is that a holy God, when faced with problems like ours, would simply destroy the traitors. Traitors against His grace. This is assuredly what happens with human kings, even good ones, and it only seems natural that a holy God of justice would do the same. But that is not what happens. Rather than destroying, which is the comfort to us of his great mercy, he actually works to cultivate in us, grant to us, a heart for obedience, which is the second comfort of his great grace. And so, in this way, he makes peace in his world in the very midst of his enemies. One way to understand the last 10 chapters of Isaiah 56 through 66 is to see them as a sort of sketch by which Isaiah the prophet 
is showing us how does a holy God go about establishing his peace upon his earth among such a people as us. In looking at it from that vantage point, we have seen that God establishes his peace by his justice, which we saw was quite counterintuitive to us. And that that peace is not a mere localized thing, but it is a part of a worldwide, multicultural, multilinguistic people from every tribe, from every language, from every nation. And that that peace comes by understanding, by repentance, and by delight. Today we will see that it also comes, that is to say it is also cultivated by practice. Read with me Isaiah chapter 59 then verses 1 through 13. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. And deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore... Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Wow, what a great passage, yeah? It's good news. I know it's hard for us to believe, but my prayer is that by the end of the time together, you will recognize that this really is good news to us. So let's go to him in prayer. 
So, Father, we do come to this passage, which to our modern North American ears seems so strange, and it grates on us, and it's not something that we would associate with your goodness and your grace and your abounding love for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so it is times like this, especially, that we recognize we need your Spirit to help us hear you speak. So grant that now, Father, we pray. Feast us upon the wonder of your great love for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and protect us from error. For we pray these things in Jesus. Amen. So last week, I opened up by declaring myself to be a Sabbatarian. Some of you went, <gasps> And to be growing as a Sabbatarian, both growing in conviction as a Sabbatarian, and I pray slowly, if haltingly, in practice as a Sabbatarian. I believe that we ought to be Sabbatarian. I believe that we are called to be Sabbatarian. I believe that we are being created to be Sabbatarian. But if that is so, the question that haunts me and perhaps is haunting you is why do I struggle so much to honor the Sabbath and keep the Lord's day? Why is it so easy to see it as optional and unimportant and to go about my work in my way, in my timing? We are, after all, a busy people. We can busily believe that our lives today, we can easily believe that our lives today are significantly busier than at any other time in history or any other place in the world. And that may or may not be true. We can all trot out all kinds of statistics and examples and essays and perhaps even books. Busyness, I am slowly discovering, however, is a function not of my schedule, but of my heart. Not of my responsibilities, but of my heart. Eugene Peterson, for example, who has just passed in this past this this past week, excuse me, entered into his reward of everlasting peace with the Father and in the presence of Jesus, he suggested that we are busy because we are bored. Isn't that an interesting concept? We're busy because we are bored. What he means by that is we are not consumed with wonder. I'd suggest that we are busy because we are afraid. Or perhaps, to, as a mashup of the two, that we are afraid of being bored. Or afraid, as my friend in Japan said, of being boring. I am boring, he declared one day. Indeed. <laughs> you see... 
the Sabbath, Lord's Day, creates for us a weekly opportunity to stop and ask, why am I so busy? What am I doing? Why am I doing it all? Why do I feel it so necessary and so indispensable that I feel I must do it, whatever the it is? Here's a thought experiment for you. What would happen if you didn't do it? Here's a more provocative thought experiment for you. What would happen if you were walking down the street one day and you got run over by a car and it didn't get done? Why is it that we are so unable or so unwilling to honor and keep the Sabbath, the Lord's day? Because, brothers and sisters, we, and I intentionally use the collective here, we believe that the Lord's wisdom and design and power and authority are insufficient for the demands of life in modern North America. Jesus, we all believe in this room, is why we're here, is great for the whole salvation thing, but simply is not up to the demands of life and work in our complex times. Because of this unbelief, we, like Israel before us, fill our time and expend our energy and resources frantically trying to supplement what we perceive to be the inadequacies of God's wisdom and of God's grace. Chapter 58 of Isaiah ends with this sort of case study, this opportunity to to enter into the Sabbath and use it as an occasion to learn to delight in the things that the Father delights in. And it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Riding on the heights of the earth, being fed upon the heritage of Jacob because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And it raises the question, why? Why do I not want that? Why am I so unwilling to enter into that? And to partake of such a feast, of such bounty. And chapter 59 answers with the, question, the answer to that. Because the Lord's hand is not shortened. The fact is, you believe that the Lord's hand is shortened. You believe that the Lord's hand cannot save. You, your ear has been, become, or excuse me, you believe that his ear is dull and that he cannot hear you. But it's simply not the case. But believing that, going into verse 2, believing that, look at this laundry list that is so overwhelming to read. A laundry list of, of hurtful and hard words that might have caused Martin Luther to say, well, that chapter doesn't belong in the Bible. It's Reformation Sunday. So for those of you who are keeping score, I made my Reformation Sunday reference check. 
Look at that. Then look at that. Verse 2, iniquities, sins. Verse 3, defiled, iniquity, lies, wickedness. Verse 4, and it keeps going, empty pleas and lies, mischief and iniquity, adder's eggs and spider's webs. Iniquity, violence, evil, shedding innocent blood, iniquity, desolation, and destruction. And because of this unbelief, you see, Israel was filling their time and expending their energy and resources frantically trying to supplement what they perceived to be the shortness of God's hand. The inability, the inadequacy of God's arm to save. God's wisdom, they believed. God's grace, they believed, is great and all, but in this area we should hedge our bets and bring in reinforcements. You understand, this is exactly what was going on in in Isaiah's encounter with Ahaz. Remember, Ahaz was facing a, a, um, an alliance of enemies that were encamped against him, threatening to destroy Jerusalem. And Israel and Isaiah came to him and said, Now remember that God is your refuge. God is your strength. He is your mighty fortress. He is the one who will defend you. Another reference. And Ahaz said, Isaiah, buddy, you're a prophet. I'm a politician. You stay in your area and I'll stay in mine. I know how to do the king thing. You know how to do the prophet thing. I know how to do the military thing. You know how to do the prophet thing. But Isaiah was saying, Ahaz, you're missing the point. I'm the spokesman of the living God. And he is your defense. He who called you is faithful. He will do it. And Ahaz says, yeah, thanks, but that makes no sense. It's so unreasonable. And if I follow your advice, we will be destroyed. You begin to recognize, don't you, how the provision of the Sabbath and the instruction to keep and honor the Sabbath functions in us in exactly the same way. The people of Israel did not perceive all of these things that they were doing as evil. They, you have to understand, and we have to understand, if we're going to allow this passage to have its good and fruitful work in us, we must understand That Israel thought they were pursuing good and reasonable strategies and solutions for the challenges they were facing living among the nations of their day. It made sense. If we're going to get along with the Canaanites, maybe we should learn how to act like a Canaanite. After all, all, the ancient Israelites said, that's what St. Paul said, all things to all people. By the way, the ancient Israelites did not say that about St. Paul. Just for those of you who are confused about the timetable there. 
but they were rooted, you see, in the belief that God's wisdom and God's power was in one way or another inadequate to the complexities and the challenges facing them, and certainly wasn't up to the challenge of figuring out how to flourish economically among the nations. You see, from their perspective, they were not abandoning their belief in Yahweh. They were simply supplementing their belief in Yahweh. And that's one of the things that is so confusing to Israel and even to us as we go into the Old Testament. Because sometimes the prophets are saying, you've abandoned Yahweh and you're pursuing this. But it's important that we stop and we reflect on the history of Israel and recognize the logic of Israel's own objection back to the prophets. We're doing everything that he commanded us and more besides. Not only are we covering all the Yahweh bases, but we're covering all the Baal bases too. We're super holy. We're super religious. Isaiah, I can't believe you're asking us to do more. We're already so busy. We're already so exhausted. So many of us fill our lives with good and reasonable pursuits. And we find ourselves exhausted and we don't understand it. And then, in the secrecy of our own heart, or perhaps even across the dining table, we accuse God of not being faithful to his promises. Of not being faithful to us and to our families and to our children. Brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had that follow this pattern in which I've suggested, have you considered that perhaps this thing that you are doing in which you place such a priority and a value on is in fact the thing that is damaging your marriage, your family, your life? That, that can't possibly be the case, goes the response. Because this is a good thing. This is a fun thing. This is something I really, really enjoy and it helps me to handle all the stress. I understand. But as Isaiah might respond, it's killing you. You see, Israel pursued various practices not because they wanted to abandon Yahweh, but because they wanted to live well and flourish in their world, just like you and I do. How are we going to do that in our complex world? But you see, in their pursuit of these practices that they thought would lead to their flourishing life among the nations in their world and in their time, they in fact were separating themselves from the fountain of life. They were, they were building this great chasm between them that separated them, verse 2, from God. That hid him from them. That made them feel as though he could not hear. You find yourself sometimes feeling that way? 
The question is this, how does that change? How do we escape such a trap? Because you see, in our mind, we're pursuing something good. It doesn't, it doesn't feel bad. It's actually quite enjoyable. And yet, it's the very thing that kills us. It's like Pop-Tarts for breakfast. And contrary to nutrition guidelines that have been recently produced, Pop-Tarts are not good for you. Even whole grain Pop-Tarts. You see, it happens by the grace of repentance. It, it happens by the practices of turning from our way to rest in the way of the Father. It, it happens by being united with Jesus in his Gethsemane prayer and practicing that prayer with him moment by moment, day after day, week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is, that prayer is the posture and the practice by which God cultivates in us and among us and through us his great peace in his world. That's why Jesus, the great sinless one, repented of his will to rest in his Father's will. If Jesus, if there was ever anyone whose will and desire was good, it was Jesus who, as you might know, was sinless. And yet, he did not consider that something to be grasped, but something to be laid down in order to pursue the will of the Father. Because real life comes from delighting in what the Father delights in and doing what the Father loves to do. It's a tall order. But it is a work of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit initiates in us these practices that go along with this thing. He initiates in us these practices by His Word and then guides us with that Word through various phases of what we might call the thing that makes up repentance. Namely, conviction, complaint, and confession. Note the three-phase movement in our passage in front of us, beginning with verse 2, verses 2 and 3. Notice, notice the pronouns. But, but y'all's iniquities have made a separation between y'all and y'all's God, y'all's sin, y'all's hands, y'all's fingers, y'all's lips, y'all's tongues. All first-person plural. I praise the Lord for southern dialects really makes preaching easy sometimes. In verses 2 and 3, it is the Lord that is speaking by His Spirit. The Lord by His Spirit is speaking through Isaiah, and He is saying, 
your iniquities are what's causing this separation. Your sins are what's hiding my face from you. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. Notice this just very quickly. Your hands are defiled. You are involved here. Not only are you involved, but there's an intensity and intentionality. Your fingers are even involved with iniquity. You think about, think about those people who have hobbies that are greatly detailed and their fingers are involved in holding these very tiny elements, tiny screws or tiny pieces of a model or something like that. That's the image here. You're so intense that even your fingertips are engaged. And so in verses 1 and 2, there's this y'all, y'all, is the Lord speaking. But then in verse 4, the Lord speaks, but someone else has come alongside and has in, as um, joined the chorus, if you will. Watch this, but be careful how your heart responds. Verse four, your hand, verse three, your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue. Verse four, yeah, that's right. No one enters suit justly. I know what you're talking about, God. No one goes to law honestly. Those bad people rely on empty law, empty pleas, and speak lies. Those bad people conceive mischief. I know exactly what you're talking about, God. I see it all the time. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave spider's webs. They, their webs, their works, their feet, their thoughts. Oh, them. I mean, life would be really happy if it weren't for them, Right? The Lord has begun speaking and Israel now in her self-righteousness joins with hearty amens. That's right, those bad people. Go get them, God. It comes naturally to us and it's actually a part of the Spirit's ever so gentle work to move us to conviction. Because what happens is this, that the Spirit speaks and we begin by saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, amen, amen, amen. And then, slowly, we begin to realize that we're all saying amen, but the Spirit has stopped speaking. And then we stop and we look around. And we wonder, hmm, he stopped speaking. What is it that we've been say, saying again? Oh, verse 9. That's why justice is far from us. Oh, that's why righteousness does not overtake us. All these things that we've been longing for and waiting for. That's why we hope for light but find only darkness and brightness but walk in gloom. That's why we, like them, are groping for the wall like the blind. Why we, like them, have no eyes. Why we, like them, in full vigor, are like dead men. 
why we growl like bears and moan like doves, why we for hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, and it feels so, 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 so far away. Because, verse 12, our transgressions, O God, are multiplied to you. Our passage has begun with the Lord speaking to Israel, and it ends with Israel confessing back to the Lord. You were right. We were wrong. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins bear testimony against us. Our transgressions are with us. Now we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying you, turning back from following you, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving. Do you see what happened here? This Lord spoke the word of truth. And he brought the people into this process. And in bringing them into the process, they began to recognize descriptors of their own heart. And it moved them to confess his truth. That's a grace. That's a grace of a loving father to his children who want to see them come back to him. Verses 9 through 13 are just as though, the, as though Israel has woken up and they're saying, they've, or to use the language of the prodigal son, they've come to themselves as though to say, wait a minute, maybe their problem is our problem. The Lord's voice has faded and it slowly allows them space and time to entertain the possibility that maybe the things we accuse them of are the things that are going on in our own heart. Remember that childish mnemonic, perhaps, that your mother or grandmother told you? Now remember, whenever you point the finger, remember you have three pointing back at you. And so what did you do? What did you do? I'll tell you what I did. So I started, I went through this whole season of doing that. Because... I'm not guilty. I'm certainly not three times guilty. We find this pattern frequently in Scripture. The Spirit instructs us. The Spirit allows us to see how it plays out in the lives of others and slowly convicts us with our own words of judgment upon others. Think of Amos, for example. Amos spends so much of his time talking about all the nations that are surrounding Israel. And then finally, when you map it, actually, it's really a worthwhile Sabbath study if you'd like to do it. Go and actually put a map of the Middle East in front of you and actually plot on the map the order of the nations that Amos addresses. And what you find is that it's spiraling in and it climaxes with Israel. It climaxes with Jerusalem. Because what Amos wants to do is he wants to bring Israel along and help them see. Do you understand why why the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, is upset with them and with them and with them and with them? Now do you see the same patterns in your own heart, O Israel? 
We see it with David and Nathan. You remember that whole, that whole story where Nathan comes to David and he tells him a story. And he draws Nathan into, I mean, David into the story. And David says, that's a wicked man. That man over there is wicked. And he needs to be destroyed. And Nathan says, you've just talked about yourself. It's a grace. This is what Paul is doing in Romans 1 through 3. If you notice, this is something we're studying in growth group and it's been fascinating to me. There's this general pattern that Paul establishes in in chapter 1, which we are all familiar with. Then he applies it to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. This is the biblical logic behind Chesterton's famous reply to the newspaper's letter to the editor in which the question was posed, you will remember this, what's wrong with the world? To which Chesterton replied, I am. Chesterton did not suffer from a poor or low self-esteem. He suffered from a biblical worldview. He recognized that the peace of God begins with the people of God. Even as Adam and Eve show us that the destruction of the world begins with the people of God. You see, the process of being brought by the Spirit through conviction and this self-righteous complaint to this point of confession, it is not comfortable, but it is not bad. It is a grace of the Father who so delights in His people that He wants them to practice turning from the pursuit of their own wisdom and their own will to rest in the goodness and wisdom and trustworthiness of His will. This is why Martin Luther wrote in his essay on Christian liberty, he says this, Now, when a man has learned through the commandments to recognize his helplessness and is distressed about how he might satisfy the law, and then being truly humbled and reduced to nothing in his own eyes, he finds in himself nothing whereby he may be justified and saved. Here, the second part of Scripture, the double comfort, if we might, of Scripture comes to our aid. Namely, the promises of God which declare the glory of God, saying, If you wish to fulfill the law, come, believe in Christ, in whom grace and righteousness and peace and liberty and all things are promised to you. If you believe, you shall have all things. If you do not believe, you shall lack all things. You see... The logic here makes little sense to the religious mind, or shall I say the merely religious mind, the one who just goes through religious practices. Tim Keller says that the merely religious mind says, what must I do? The gospel-saturated mind says, what has God accomplished? The frustrated religious mind says, what? What more can I do? You want me to do that too? And the gospel calls us to stop what you are doing and do this instead. You see, the Sabbath, Lord's Day, brothers and sisters, provides us a regular opportunity to practice that. To practice saying and living in response to that gospel call. To join Jesus in the practices of his Gethsemane prayer saying, not my will, not my way, but your will, your way, your wisdom, your strength, your resources, your timing. 
because you care for my life and my family and my world so much more than I could ever imagine. You see, in a fallen world, this is what growing in holiness feels like. This is what growing in grace feels like. This is what learning to delight in what the Father delights in feels like. Not this, but that. This is what we just heard a few minutes ago. The Spirit's grace to Karen in frantic, busy, stressful times in which she in which she came to realize that there were things that were eclipsing Christ. And the joy of resting in that refound awareness. It's not that those other things become unimportant, it's that those other things find their rightful place. The Sabbath, Lord's Day, is that regular opportunity for us to do that. To say, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, this is why we have the poor always among us. So that one, I'm pointing with all four fingers. So that one... As we encounter those we esteem to be poor in whatever manner, or those who are actually poor, we are confronted with the challenge. Will you delight in what I delight in? Will you do what I do? Will you say with Jesus in Gethsemane, nonetheless, not what I value or delight in, but what you value and delight in? But secondly... As we take these opportunities to delight in what the Father delights in, as we practice these opportunities, we slowly begin to discover that we are the poor that He loves. Many of you are very well familiar with my long relationship with Eric Benefield, who has since received his reward. But as I learned to walk with him and as I learned to love him, I learned that his heart was my heart. For those of you who don't know, Eric struggled for years and years with multiple addictions. And what we learned together was that his struggles as a, quote, addict were exactly the same as my struggles as a sinner. It's exactly the same thing. We're trying to supplement what we believe to be the inadequacy of God. We're trying to make up what we believe to be the weakness of God's grace. Perhaps it's unexpected developments in your day-to-day, week-to-week relationships and responsibilities, unexpected ups and downs and twists and turns and disruptions to your relationships and routines that cause us to join Jesus in Gethsemane and learn to pray, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Some of you might be thinking, how is this not godless stoicism and atheistic fatalism. 
How is it not the same as those? Because that's what it sounds like, Dan. Okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Let go and let God. What's the difference? The difference is the one to whom we are praying. The one in whom we are investing our time and our resources and our trust. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane began with, Father. Earlier that evening, John tells us that because he knew his Father, where he had come from and where he was going to his Father, he served his disciples even to the point of death upon the cross. Jesus knew his Father. Even in our own passage, beginning with chapter 59, behold, the Lord's hand. The word, the Lord's hand, is the covenantal name of Yahweh. The, the name of the God who calls and is faithful. The name of the God who makes promises and keeps promises. This covenant-making, covenant-keeping God whose steadfast love for you has been proven time and again by the history of his mighty works to redeem you. Plagues, Red Sea, Men in the wilderness, water from the rock, the defeat of Jericho by worship for crying out loud. Promises made, promises kept in stunning ways. This is the God who calls you and grants to you the gift of Sabbath rest. The gift of Lord's Day celebration. He doesn't want to keep things from you. He wants you to delight in the bounty of that which delights him. It stands in stark contrast to this, this chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. That's the Lord's response to Israel's anonymous accusation in 58, verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your... Why have we done these things and you don't take knowledge of it? There's no name there. They don't even know the one to whom they cry. So far have they drifted from him. And he responds, I'm Yahweh. I am your God. And you are my people, my chosen one. In whom I delight. Come home to me. And rest. Come home to me. And feast. You see brothers and sisters. That was the great reformation discovery. That we'd lost sight of Christ. By the frantic though quite sincere. Pursuit of all manner of practices. That were developed as a way to help. And supplement our life with Christ. But had in fact eclipsed our life with Christ. This is why Robert Capon writes this. I love this quote. 
The Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering, drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of believers trying to lift themselves into heaven by worrying about the perfection of their own bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they even started. Grace was to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, Certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. Because the reformers had discovered that they had drifted in their sincere pursuit of Christ, they had drifted from Christ. And by the Spirit's powerful working, they were drawn home into his Sabbath rest and his Lord's Day celebration. Brothers and sisters, that's the stuff of revival. That's the stuff of faithfulness. This is what we celebrate in the lives of the saints, both living and dead. This is what it means for us to be reformed. This is what it means to be heirs of that great Reformation revival. To be called his saints, because this is what it means to be holy. This is what it feels like to be united with Christ in Gethsemane, and upon the cross, and in the grave, and in the day of resurrection. It is not a bad thing when the Spirit causes us to walk with Christ through his death and resurrection. That is a good thing. And it's something we can go to the bank with. Because that is the practice by which God's peace on earth and goodwill to men comes. May we join him there. So Jesus, we pray that even as you have promised and by your spirit, you would strengthen us to behold that glory, to rest in that glory, to taste that glory, to participate in that glory, the glory of your Gethsemane prayer, your death upon the cross, your burial, your resurrection, and even your present day reign. May we learn to participate in that week after week as you grant to us a Sabbath Lord's Day in which we remember the great privilege we have to say, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. In this way, may you be glorified, and may we grow up as a people into your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.